These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. One day, a man walks out of his office onto the streets of New York City. Overhead, he hears an airplane. The year is 1930, and he imagines a giant creature on top of the tallest building being shot at by this airplane. He is suddenly filled with the urge to make a movie about a giant gorilla terrorizing the big city with a screaming blonde girl in his hand. This was at a time when sound films were brand new and special effects were very primitive. But with boundless energy and drive, he was able to create his vision. Today I have the first part of the story of Marion C. Cooper and the film King Kong on the 201st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Good Sunday morning to you. My name is Jeff, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spend about two weeks researching a topic that I would like to know more about, and then then write it into a podcast that's hopefully entertaining. Well, at least that's the plan, you know. So, King Kong. I believe this was the first film I was ever really fascinated with. Not the first film I ever saw or the first film I ever loved, but the first one I wanted to know more about. It was about the time that Dino De Laurentiis' 1976 version came out. I remember I wanted to know everything about it, and I, and I bought the novelizations of both the 1933 version and the 1976 version. And you know, I'm not a hater of the 1976 version. It's not a good film, that's for sure, but it is good campy fun. And it introduced the world to Jessica Lange, so that's something. And I like the way they attempted to bring Kong into the 70s. Now, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember when that came out, but they advertised the fact that they were building a life-size mechanical Kong, 40 feet high, and it was going to amaze the world. Well, in fact, it never worked right, and it's only in about 15 seconds of the film. When you see it, it stands out because it doesn't look anything like the man in the Kong costume that's in most of the movie. But this show was about the 1933 version by Marion C. Cooper. Cooper was determined not to have a man in a costume, so he pushed for some revolutionary film techniques. Well, this is the story of um, lightning in a bottle, when all the right elements and people just came together at the right time to make a film that's well lasted for, for years and years. So, why don't we get to it? You go grab yourself a coffee, and and I'll begin to talk about the making of a film of a giant gorilla. Listen, I'm Carl Denham. Ever hear of me? Yes. Yes. You make moving pictures in jungles and places. That's right. And I picked you for the lead in my next picture. Where to? A long way off. I tell you, there's something on that island that no white man has ever seen. Something monstrous. All powerful. Still living still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. Did you ever hear of Kong? The face of the gorilla was intensely black. The vast chest, which proved his great power, was bare and covered with parchment-like skin. Its body was covered with gray hair. 
There were significant points of diversity between this animal and man. I never kill one without having a sickening realization of the horrid lightness of the beast. This was particularly the case today when the animal approached us in its fierce way, walking on its hind legs, and facing us as few animals face man. Chapter 16, Meeting a Gorilla, from Paul de Chalieu's book, Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa. The story of King Kong begins with a 16-year-old Marion C. Cooper in Jacksonville, Florida. The year was 1899, and he was given a copy of that book by his grandfather. The book fascinated the young Marion, not only for its adventure, but for its description of the gorilla. I made up my mind right there I wanted to be an explorer, Cooper later told historian Rudy Bellmer. He yearned for a life of adventure and living dangerously, and he did just that. After graduating high school in 1911, Cooper, who was from a very upscale and privileged home, was granted a prestigious appointment to the U.S. Navy Academy. He was expelled, however, in his senior year for hell-raising and supporting air power. It seemed that many at the school didn't like his opinion that the new airplane, not the Navy, would be the key to winning a war. Cooper said of his time at the Academy, I was high-spirited, loved excitement, took chances, and got caught too many times. In 1916, Cooper helped chase down Pancho Villa in Mexico as part of the Georgia National Guard. Soon, however, he was learning to fly airplanes. And he would become a pilot in World War I, conducting bombing runs over Germany in a wooden DH-4 Liberty biplane. The aircraft was known as a flying coffin for its tendency to catch fire when hit by gunfire. Such a thing happened to Cooper when he was returning from a successful bombing raid. He was hit by the enemy, and without a parachute, he had only one option, attempt to land the burning craft. Somehow, Marion Cooper survived, but suffered horrible burns. After the war, he would stay in Europe performing humanitarian duties, like bringing food to starving populations. This led him to Poland, where he helped battle the invading Bolsheviks. He would be shot down and spend months in a Soviet prison camp where madness and death were always near. It was also in Europe where he fathered a child out of wedlock and met American cameraman Ernest Scholdeshack. Scholdeshack would become Cooper's filmmaking partner. For a while, Cooper was able to travel as first officer with Scholdeshack on a sea voyage. They were on the schooner Wisdom II with the idea of collecting information on little-known areas of the world for a book, magazine articles, and a film. He would visit many islands and meet a lot of native people. He would also witness gorillas, and even at this time, the idea of making a movie of one of these fierce gorillas started entering his mind. Now, I could spend hours talking about the things Marion C. Cooper did, his adventures before becoming a filmmaker, but this story is about Kong. Just know that Cooper lived a dangerous and exciting life before Kong, and a lot of his experiences were reflected in the film. In fact, the character of Carl Denham would be based on Cooper. Now, Ernest Scholdeshack was born in Council Bluff, Iowa in 1893. As an adult, he was almost six and a half feet tall, so his friends naturally called him Shorty. In 1914, he began working as a cameraman for the great Max Sennett and continued as a cameraman in the First World War. After meeting Marion C. Cooper in 1918 in Vienna, they both decided they wanted to make films, ones that combined what they called the three Ds, distance, difficulty, and danger. 
They began with a couple silent documentaries. The first, Grass, A Nation's Battle for Life in 1925, was about the real-life struggles of the Bakhtiari tribe in southern Persia, taking their seasonal journey to better pastures for the herds. And then Chang, A Drama in Wilderness in 1927, a film about a poor farmer in northern Thailand and his daily struggles for survival in the jungle. Chang was nominated for an Academy Award for a unique and artistic production at the first Academy Awards in 1929. The first work of fiction was based on the 1902 book The Four Feathers. Cooper and Shouldershack traveled to Tanzania and Sudan to shoot parts of the film, which were combined with footage of the actors filmed on a soundstage. The film was one of the last silent pictures. One of the actors in the movie was a woman who had recently been in Eric von Stroheim's The Wedding March. Her name was Faye Ray. On the production, they worked with a 26-year-old David O. Selznick. Cooper wasn't happy with Selznick's editing of the film, including his reshoots. When Cooper left the premiere of The Four Feathers, he said, I made up my mind as I came out of the theater that I wouldn't make another picture until I could be the boss. Despite this, Cooper and Selznick became friends, having a great respect for one another. Once finished with The Four Feathers, Cooper took a break from filmmaking to focus on his love of aviation. He became a member of the board of directors of Pan American Airways. He lived in New York and was a businessman and executive but it didn't take long before he began thinking of giving all that up and returning to a life of adventure. As early as 1929, he was starting to think about a guerrilla picture and even wrote to Paramount to see if they were interested. And then one day he was leaving his office in New York when he heard the sound of a plane overhead. Looking up, he saw the plane through the glaring sun. It was passing over the New York Life Insurance Building. Without any conscious effort of thought, Cooper recalled later, I immediately saw in my mind's eye a giant gorilla on top of the building. He began to think of a story in which the highest building in the world represented civilization and a huge gorilla as nature. In the summer of 1931, David O. Selznick was having problems. He had quit Paramount and was looking to start an independent studio, having been frustrated with the big studios. This worried people like Louis B. Mayer, who thought this might be a threat to the studio system, and they did everything possible to block Selznick. Selznick turned to Cooper, who he knew ran in elite circles. Cooper helped Selznick, thinking it would be a great way to get his gorilla picture made. Through connections of Cooper, Selznick found a job as a studio vice president in charge of production for a struggling studio. The studio Selznick was now working for was called RKO. Selznick hired Cooper as one of his two executive assistants. He knew that Cooper was a natural storyteller with boundless energy. Cooper took the responsibility very seriously, but refused to take a salary. Instead, he wanted to retain full rights to the characters and name of Kong. Now, before he began his gorilla picture, he had to find a way to bring the giant beast to life. He knew a real gorilla wouldn't work, and he quickly dismissed the idea of a man in a rubber suit. Now, there was a film being made at RKO at the time called Creation. Creation was to feature dinosaurs created from a new film technique called three-dimensional stop-motion animation. The man behind this illusion was Willis O'Brien. O'Brien had an interesting history. He left home at age 11 and took jobs as a farmhand, factory worker, fur trapper, cowboy, and bartender. 
He also competed in rodeos and developed an interest in dinosaurs while working as a guide for a paleontologist in the Crater Lake region. He was also a professional boxer, a railroad brakeman, and later a surveyor. On top of all this, he had a talent for sculpting and illustrating, which led to employment as a draftsman in an architect's office and then as a sports cartoonist for the San Francisco Daily News. One day he formed a little man, a boxer out of clay. And then he had an idea. If he moved it a little and took a picture, then moved it a little more and took another picture, and so on and so on, he could show these pictures one after another and they would give the illusion of motion. It was the same way cartoons were created, but this was in three dimensions. He would end up creating animations for the 1915 World's Fair of a Dinosaur and a Caveman. He was assisted by a local newsreel cameraman. He began making short films for the Edison Company. His first short was also made in 1915, called The Dinosaur and the Missing Link, A Prehistoric Tragedy. The first feature he worked on was the 1925 film The Lost World, based on Arthur Conan Doyle's 1912 novel of the same name. The legend goes that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle showed a reel of O'Brien's animation from the film to his friends. He claimed it was real footage of living dinosaurs, to try to convince them that his story was actually based on fact. At the time Cooper came across O'Brien, the estimated budget for creation had grown to over a million dollars, which was huge for 1930, so the film was cancelled. Cooper screened some of the test footage and thought it was, well, horrible but he saw something in it that convinced him to give O'Brien a try. At this point, Cooper hadn't yet got the green light for Kong, or the Beast as it was being called. In order to convince the RKO executives, they began tests with O'Brien's animation combined with live actors. They also constructed a full-size head, hands, and feet of a giant ape. Cooper also had O'Brien do a bunch of production sketches, one of these sketches was the famous giant gorilla gripping a woman in its hand on top of the Empire State Building as planes attack. He also came up with the image of Kong trying to shake men off of a log. I had to start the test reel and everybody thought I was nuts, Cooper later said. Everybody wanted me to put a man in a gorilla suit and it would have just been horrible and I resisted the pressure. All the financial guys wanted me to do it. We could have done it in a tenth of the time, but it wouldn't have been any damn good. Cooper also looked for O'Brien to come up with concepts for the way the gorilla should look. His first attempt wasn't to Cooper's liking. It looked like a cross between a monkey and a man with long hair, he said. After a second attempt was just as bad, Cooper wrote to the American Museum of Natural History to get the proper specifications for a gorilla. O'Brien feared that a real gorilla would terrify audiences, therefore preventing the beast from gaining sympathy. I'll have women crying over him before I'm through, Cooper insisted, and the more brutal he is, the more they'll cry at the end. The job of designing the final model for Kong went to model maker Marcel Dorgado, who had created the dinosaurs for the lost world. Now while all this was going on, Cooper was involved in another film, The Most Dangerous Game. The film starred both Robert Armstrong and Fay Ray, who would go on to being King Kong. He would use the jungle sets for the dangerous game as the sets for the Kong tests. He would grab Armstrong and Fay Ray from the set, change their costumes, put a blonde wig on Ray, and begin shooting. Now to convince Faye Ray to take the role, Cooper used the same technique Carl Denham would use with Anne Darrow in the final film. 
You'll have the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood, Cooper told Ray. Those were the first words I heard about Kong, Ray said. She thought it would be somebody like Clark Gable. Cooper began pacing back and forth, telling her the story of an expedition to a remote island. My heart was racing, Fay Ray said, waiting for the revelation. I enjoyed his mysterious tone, the gleeful look in his eye as he seemed to say, just wait till you hear who will be playing opposite you. Then Cooper took out a picture of a giant gorilla and showed it to Ray. She said, my heart stopped, then sank. As she looked at the giant gorilla staring at her, Cooper explained the story. She said, Cooper was delighted in my amazement, especially, I think, the look of shock and apprehension on my face. Now, it was a huge challenge to film some of the composite shots as it had never been done before. One of the test shots was when Kong places Anne on a tree before fighting off an Allosaurus. It was done by having the fighting monsters projected on a big screen behind Fay Ray. Because of the complexity of synchronizing the camera and lighting, it took almost 22 hours to get right. Ray was so close to projection, she only saw a blur of Kong. Cooper kept yelling, Scream, Faye! Scream for your life! The same words that Denim will say later in the actual movie. The big day came when Cooper flew to New York to present his test footage and the artwork to the money people. They loved everything they saw, especially the scene in which Kong shook the men off the log. They also loved the concept art of Kong holding Fay Ray on top of the Empire State Building. He was given the go-ahead to create his vision. Of course, the next challenge was the script. David O. Selznick hired the famous writer Edgar Wallace to write a screenplay, figuring his name would add luster to the credits. Wallace turned in his outline in January of 1932. It opened with a monkey on a steamer plucking petals off a flower. They were headed to Vapor Island. The female lead was Shirley Redman, whom Kong rescues from an attempted rape by a group of escaped convicts who had kidnapped her. John Layson and the rest of the convicts attempt to rescue her. Along the way, Kong fights dinosaurs and such. Eventually, the men used gas bombs to knock Kong out and bring him to New York. After Kong escapes and climbs to the top of the Empire State Building, he is killed when lightning strikes the flagpole that he was holding on to. In Wallace's story, there were many characters and scenarios that never made it into the final script. I believe his original script, if you want to read it, is available online. There were a lot of differences, but many of the elements were there, including the Beauty and the Beast theme, and Cooper and Shack were thrilled. Cooper began sending memos to Wallace for changes he'd like to see in the script. But before Wallace could begin those changes, he began to suffer sudden, severe headaches and he was diagnosed with diabetes. His condition quickly worsened, and within a short time, slipped into a coma. Edgar Wallace died on February 10, 1932. Soon after Wallace's death, writer James Creelman was brought in. Creelman had been writing films since 1920, including the screenplay for The Most Dangerous Game. Wallace's idea of a convict ship landing on Vapor Island was changed when Cooper visited the 40-acre backlot in Culver City. There was a set of a native village that was built for a film called Birds of Paradise. Bugsley Berkeley was filming a native dance sequence. Suddenly Cooper was transported back to his adventurer days, seeing warrior tribes on a remote island. It inspired a new thought. What if Kong was a supernatural figure to the natives? 
and he imagined a huge mysterious ceremony to Kong who was on the other side of a great wall. He continued to wander around the back lot when he came across an old temple set from Cecil B. DeMille's 1927 biblical epic, The King of Kings. He saw this as his native village set with a huge massive wall that kept the superstitious natives from the dangerous jungle on the other side. And what better way for the natives to try to appease the mighty Kong, he thought, but with a human sacrifice. He began sending Creelman this and other changes to the script, and Creelman found it quite a challenge to make it all work. But in the end, he produced a script that Cooper considered the first real one. But he found, however, the dialogue lacking. For this, he turned to a woman named Ruth Rose. Ruth was the wife of Ernie Shouldershack and had been on the adventures with her husband and Cooper. She was the daughter of playwright Ernest E. Rose, but had never written anything for herself. Cooper had the feeling that Rose could make the screenplay sound more authentic. Put us into it, Cooper told her. Give it the spirit of a real Cooper Shouldershack expedition. When she wrote, she envisioned Carl Denham as Cooper, Jack Driscoll as her husband, and even Anne Darrow as herself. Rose also increased the pacing of the film by cutting many long, unimportant scenes in Creelman's script. And she is credited for writing such famous lines as, Oh no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. In the end, Cooper said of Wallace's original script, The present script of Kong, as far as I remember, hasn't one single idea suggested by Edgar Wallace. If there are, they are of the slightest. Wallace's name would be in the final credits for the weight it carried and a promise that they had made. But for the final script, he said that 90% of the dialogue was Ruth's. Now he had the green light an idea for how the effects would be done, and a script, so it was time to start production. And that's where we will pick up the story on the next episode of Coffee with Jeff. That's all. Fay Ray served you very well, of course, in <laughs> your own name. You were promised, for, for that movie, promised the tallest, darkest leading man, weren't you? Yes. Now, the, the man who, who made that film really said that to me uh, first off when I went to talk to him about the, the playing this part, and he said, Faye, you're going to have the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. Ah, you thought, who did you think it was going to be? I was hoping it was going to be Cary Grant. Mm. It, he was tall and dark yeah. and, and very attractive. And then when they showed me the fellow they had in mind, he was, he was less attractive. But he, he, he was a brunette. Uh, definitely, yes, yes. A little bit before I go. You know, like many great films, I think this is one of those, for lack of a better phrase, perfect storms. Between Cooper, Schuldenschack, Selznick, O'Brien, Rose, all coming together at the right time to do something amazing. Any one of those pieces not being present, the film probably wouldn't have worked as well as it did. I think that's why so many Hollywood remakes fall flat. Because when the original was made, it was just this remarkable coincidence of the right people coming together at the right time. And you can't force that to happen. In part two of my story, I'll be talking a little bit about the 1976 version and the Peter Jackson 2005 version, as well as the racism in King Kong. I would also like to point out that I used the book by Mark Cadavast called Living Dangerously, The Adventures of Marion C. Cooper, creator of King Kong, extensively for this episode. It's a very good book, and if you're interested in Marion C. Cooper at all, I would advise reading it. It goes into a lot more detail than I can possibly talk about here. 
Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to that on the Coffee with Jeff website. If you've got a few extra coins and can help with the show, why don't you do that by contributing to my Patreon page? Again, you can go to the CoffeeWithJeff.com website for more information. Hey, and tell your friends about it, won't you? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome. I want to thank my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to this show, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. I'll be back in two weeks with the next part of King Kong. Thank you.